Bimal Kaur Khalsa was decorating the house for a birthday party. Her son Sarabjit was turning six tomorrow, and the whole family would be coming over. It might even be enough to cheer up her husband, Bayant. He'd been withdrawn and moody for the past few months. She knew why. Operation Blue Star had upset every Sikh in Punjab. But she thought it was time things got back to normal. There was a knock on the door. A few police officers were standing outside. Not an unusual sight, since Bayant was on the police force as well. But from the look on their faces, it was clear these officers weren't there for a social call. They had bad news to deliver. Bimal's husband, Bayant Singh, had assassinated Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Bayant had been killed in the aftermath, and Bimal was being detained for questioning. Bimal didn't know a thing about what had happened. She didn't even have time to process what they told her before she was dragged out the door by her husband's colleagues, or her deceased husband's former colleagues. She didn't have time to tell their children where she was going. Five-year-old Sarabjit, his older sister Amrit, and baby Jaswinder were left at home. They didn't see their mother again for two weeks. Most of their extended family was detained as well, and their father would never come home again. For the next 30 years, Sarabjit Singh would never celebrate his birthday. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. Last week, we followed the events leading up to Indira Gandhi's murder on October 31st, 1984. In this episode, we'll look at the aftermath of the shooting, the lengthy trial of Satwant Singh, and how the world today might be different if Indira Gandhi hadn't been killed. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. In 1984, British actor and television presenter Peter Ustinov traveled to Delhi to interview India's Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. At 63, Peter had seen a lot. His father had been a spy for the British intelligence agency MI5. Peter had served in World War II, won two Academy Awards, written nine screenplays, directed several operas, and served as a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF. But nothing could prepare him for what he would witness on October 31, 1984. As he waited outside Indira Gandhi's front gate, running over his planned interview in his head, a sound startled him out of his reverie. Peter initially thought the gunshots were just firecrackers. 
But then he saw the guards circling around two men who were shouting in unison, Bole so Nihal, Sut Sri Akal. A Sikh battle cry, traditionally shouted by warriors after a victory. It means, shout aloud in ecstasy. True is the great timeless one. The prime minister lay on the ground, blood soaking through her orange sari. Confident that justice was served and ready to accept their fates, the assassins, Bayant Singh and Satwant Singh, dropped their weapons. A dozen guards closed in and peacefully shepherded them into a nearby room. Indira Gandhi's daughter-in-law, her son, Rajiv's wife, Sonia, had been inside when she heard the gunfire. She rushed down the stairs screaming to find the guards and assistants already carrying Indira's body into a car. Sonia climbed in after them and held Indira's head in her lap as they rushed to the hospital. What happened inside the room where Bayant and Satwant were being detained is shrouded in a bit of mystery. About 10 minutes after they surrendered, Satwant reportedly panicked and lunged at one of the guards trying to grab his gun. The other guards opened fire, killing Bayant instantly and leaving Satwant with multiple bullet wounds. It's hard to explain why the two men, who had already peacefully surrendered their weapons, would suddenly decide to fight against a dozen armed guards. It's harder still to explain why it was necessary to shoot multiple rounds into the two unarmed and outnumbered assassins. Many believe the shooting wasn't self-defense, it was an execution. Bayant was gone, but Sutwant was still clinging to life. He was taken to a heavily guarded hospital where he'd stay for two weeks until he was stable enough to be interrogated. Meanwhile, on the eighth floor of the All India Institute of Medical Sciences Hospital, 12 doctors were scrambling to bring Indira Gandhi back to life. She had no vital signs when she arrived, but they put her on an artificial lung and a machine to keep her heart pumping while they assessed the damage. It took 88 bottles of blood to replace what she'd lost in the shooting. In the hospital conference room, her cabinet ministers gathered, some of them too stunned to say or do anything. It was obvious that the prime minister wouldn't survive, no matter how hard the doctors worked, but some of the ministers refused to believe it. A doctor at the hospital later remarked, they would not accept that she was gone. Rajiv Gandhi had been across the country in West Bengal that morning, nearing the last stop of his campaign tour, when a police jeep pulled his car over to deliver the news. There's been an accident in the house, return immediately to Delhi. That's all he was told. While he was at the airport waiting for a helicopter to arrive, he switched on his radio and tuned into the BBC News. They delivered the whole story. Indira Gandhi had been shot at 33 times by her own bodyguards and was struck with 30 of the rounds. Rajiv asked his aides, did she deserve all these bullets? The report said that Indira was in critical condition, but there was no official word that she had died, at least not yet. Some of Rajiv's aides and companions started to cry, but he told them, don't worry, she's tough. Indira Gandhi certainly was tough. 
she'd wrestled complete control of the political party that had tried to use her as a puppet. She'd overturned the Constitution and declared a 21-month state of emergency to hold on to her office. When it looked like her career was over, she'd bounced back to win re-election. But even she couldn't survive 30 bullet wounds. At 1.45 p.m. on October 31, 1984, the news bulletin was finally sent out. Mrs. Gandhi is dead. Rajiv arrived in Delhi just shortly after the news went out. When he stepped out of the plane, he was swarmed by a flock of bodyguards and protected by sharpshooters positioned along the entire route to the hospital. He was now the heir to the kingdom, the only surviving member of the Nehru family dynasty. When Rajiv got to the hospital, his mother's cabinet ministers rushed to meet him. They were all sobbing, but Rajiv remained stoic. Someone had to hold the country together after the assassination of its prime minister, and Rajiv had no choice but to step up to the challenge. Rajiv had only reluctantly stepped into politics three years earlier, but Indira had consolidated so much power and grown so distrustful of other politicians that she didn't have any colleagues with enough knowledge, influence, or experience to take the reins. That is, none except her right-hand advisor and heir apparent, Rajiv. Just nine hours after the shooting, at 6.45 p.m., the Congress party voted for Rajiv Gandhi to replace his mother as the new prime minister. He was sworn in by President Zail Singh, who was a Sikh. Addressing the nation after the ceremony, Rajiv said, nothing would hurt the soul of our beloved Indira Gandhi more than the occurrence of violence in any part of the country. It is of prime importance at this moment that every step we take be in the correct direction. Unfortunately, his advice was not heeded. Even before the news of Indira's death broke, a mob had surrounded the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, where she was being treated, calling for vengeance. When President Singh arrived at the hospital that evening, they threw stones at his car, shouting, blood for blood. The violence spread to the surrounding areas. Angry crowds stopped city buses, pulled out any Sikh passengers, and set their turbans on fire. One man on the street in Delhi told a reporter, quote, you know how I feel? I want to kill Sikhs. I want to see Sikh blood on the streets. The mobs marched through Delhi, armed with iron rods, knives, and kerosene, and attacked any houses or businesses that were owned by Sikhs. Once the buildings were set ablaze, any escaping Sikhs were beaten, stabbed, and then burned alive in the street. Inside one Sikh-owned hotel, witnesses saw groups of men tearfully cutting their hair and beards as the attackers approached so they wouldn't be identifiable as Sikhs. The Delhi police and the Indian government at large didn't intervene. In fact, multiple leaders of Indira Gandhi's Congress party actually met with some of the rioters, armed them with weapons, and distributed voter lists to help them identify Sikh homes. All night, the riots were broadcast on the state-controlled TV station Doordarshan. 
But the coverage focused on the tamer crowds of chanting protesters outside the prime minister's residence, neglecting to show the carnage that was taking place just down the street. By the next morning, November 1st, the attacks had spread throughout the country. Trains full of dozens of dead bodies started arriving in Delhi. In reality, they were the bodies of Sikhs who were killed by Hindus in Punjab. But a rumor spread that they were dead Hindus who had been killed by Sikhs. This rumor was widely spread by the police. It was used to justify the violence against Sikhs, portraying it as a two-sided war instead of a massacre. Rajiv Gandhi himself excused the riots by claiming that the Sikhs who were being killed had been seen celebrating Indira's murder. The Indian government promptly stopped train service between Delhi and the northern provinces once the bodies started arriving. Unable to flee the capital and too afraid to venture back outside, hundreds of Sikh families remained trapped in the Delhi terminal, waiting for help that would never arrive. By the end of the week, the death toll across India was over 1,000. Once the dust settled, the total number of casualties was somewhere between 8 and 17,000. Most of the victims were burned alive. And Rajiv Gandhi's first act as prime minister was to stand by and watch it happen. In the coming years, the Indian government's complicity in the riots would be called a genocide by the central governing body of Sikhism, the Akal Takht. In 2013, the White House referred to it as a grave human rights violation and an act of hatred against Sikhs when prompted by an online petition. When a riot-related case reached the Delhi High Court in 2009, the verdict read, quote, the role played by Delhi police and state machinery in particular makes our heads hang in shame. Bayant and Satwan Singh had killed Indira Gandhi in revenge for the hundreds of innocent Sikhs who perished during Operation Blue Star. But their act of violence only resulted in thousands of more deaths, and even more blood would be shed before it was all said and done. Coming up, we'll look at Satwant Singh's trial and the legacy of the Nehru-Gandhi family dynasty. Now back to the story. According to a Time magazine feature published in the wake of Indira Gandhi's 1984 death, world reaction quickly centered on two themes, shock and horror at the murder of a woman who had led her country for 16 of the past 18 years and concern over whether her son was properly equipped for the job that so quickly became his. One of Rajiv Gandhi's first responsibilities as the new prime minister was investigating his mother's assassination. One of the two assassins, Bayant Singh, had been killed at the scene of the crime. But the other, Satwant Singh, survived to tell his story. Satwant had been shot six times, one bullet ripped through his kidney and became lodged in his spine. On November 16, 1984, just over two weeks after the assassination, Satwant, who was still paralyzed from the waist down and wrapped in bandages, was formally arrested and declared medically fit for questioning. During his initial interrogation, Satwant mentioned that Bayant didn't trust him to go through with the plan 
and he'd even threatened him the morning of the attack. Since Bant was no longer alive to tell his side of the story, there's no way of knowing whether Sutwant was telling the truth. Bant couldn't be questioned, but the rest of his family could. Shortly after the assassination, Bant's wife, Bimal Kaur Khalsa, was arrested, along with several of Bant's extended family members. Bimal didn't know anything about the assassination plan. Neither did Bant's brother, Shamsher, who later said that he would have stopped Bant if he knew what he was planning. But Bimal was able to point the investigators toward a potential co-conspirator, Bayan's uncle, Kehar Singh, who had been coming around the house in the weeks leading up to the assassination, where he would speak to Bayant in hushed tones. She didn't know what they had been saying, but in hindsight, it was all too clear. There was immediately speculation that Bayant, Sutwant, and Kehar had been part of a larger conspiracy by Sikh leaders. When police searched Bayant's home, they found a photo of Jarnail Singh Bindranwali, the Sikh extremist who had been targeted by Operation Blue Star. They also found extremist literature and a small amount of foreign currency, suggesting the conspiracy might involve Sikhs living abroad. But Bayant was also known to travel abroad as part of Indira Gandhi's security detail. There was no proof to suggest anyone, foreign or domestic, had paid Bayant or Sutwant to take part in the assassination. Of course, this didn't stop Indian officials from telling the press that a substantial amount of money was involved in the plot. Nor did it stop them from rounding up every Sikh in Delhi who could be deemed suspicious. Among the people detained for questioning, three other policemen who were described as close to the assassins, a police constable who had once had a bunk next to Sutwant in the barracks, several members of the Indo-Tibetan border police, who also formed part of Gandhi's security detail, local business owners, bank clerks, and even a rubber factory employee. Balbir Singh, another Sikh member of Gandhi's security team, and an avid birdwatcher was indicted and stuck in a maximum security cell right next to Sutwant. On the morning of the assassination, Balbir had been thrilled to discover a falcon nesting near the prime minister's house. He excitedly told Sutwant about the falcon, which the prosecutors claimed was some kind of code word. Bulbeer was in prison for four years before he even stood trial. When he was finally acquitted in 1988, he said, justice is still alive in this country. Kehar Singh was not as lucky as Bulbeer. He hadn't been present for the assassination and Sutwant maintained that he hadn't been part of the plan at all. He was merely an old man in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Bimal's testimony suggested Kehar and Bayant had been planning something secretive in the lead-up to the assassination. Rumors swirled that Kehar, who worked in the Commerce Ministry, had been working with high-ranking government officials to plan the attack. It seemed difficult to believe that two policemen with no previous ties to extremist groups could plan and execute something like this on their own. However, the Indian government also had a few compelling motives to prove that there was a wide-reaching conspiracy. 
For one, it was embarrassing to admit that two trusted bodyguards acting alone had been able to plan such an attack without raising any red flags. For another, after the shocking lack of government response to the anti-Sikh riots that followed the assassination, it would help their public relations to make the wider Sikh community look as guilty as possible. With so many rumors, conspiracy theories, and red herrings circulating around the country, investigators had their work cut out for them. There were 247 days of depositions over a five-year period, and every iota of evidence was subject to scrutiny. And while Satwant and Kehar were awaiting their final sentence, the India around them was changing rapidly. On November 19, 1984, just 19 days after the assassination and barely two weeks after the anti-Sikh riots had come to an end, Rajiv Gandhi delivered a speech at a Delhi boat club. Referring to the riots, he said, We know the people were very angry, and for a few days it seemed that India had been shaken. But when a mighty tree falls, it is only natural that the earth around it does shake a little. Justifying the murders of thousands of innocent people as collateral damage was not a popular move amongst India's Sikhs. Doing it from a boat club, the timeless symbol of the out-of-touch political elite, was an even worse idea. The Sikh community, still reeling from the attacks, took this as a sign that the younger Gandhi would be no friendlier than his mother was. In the coming years, Sikh extremism ratcheted up, especially in the Punjab region. The separatist branch of the religion continued to fight for their own sovereign state, as Bindranwali had proposed. Some more militant groups planned attacks against Hindus in response to the violence against Sikhs. On June 23, 1985, a Canadian Sikh group detonated a bomb on Air India Flight 182 en route from Toronto to Bombay, killing 329 people. The group's leader claimed he wanted revenge on the Indian government for the thousands of Sikhs who were killed the previous year, both in Operation Blue Star and in the November 1984 riots. To appease the Sikh separatists, Rajiv Gandhi drafted a peace deal in 1985. He recognized the Sikhs' religious and economic demands and promised to relinquish federal control of Chandigarh, the capital city of Punjab, giving it entirely to Sikh leaders. He also released many of the militants who had been imprisoned after Operation Blue Star. But his offer had a few conditions. While he agreed to relinquish control of the capital city of Punjab, he asked that Punjab, in turn, relinquish control of a region called Haryana to the federal government. Haryana had a large Hindu and Muslim population, and he wanted them to be free from what he called the parallel government of extremists that operated in Punjab. Gandhi also refused to bring charges against the government officials who had incited the 1984 riots, which was a sticking point for Sikh leaders. Not only were the two sides unable to come to an agreement, but Sikhs left the table even angrier at the Indian government than they had been before. Among the enraged was Bayant Singh's widow, Bimal. 
After Bimal was released from two weeks of interrogation, she and her three children moved to Chandigarh, Punjab. In September 1985, Bimal ran for a seat in the Punjab state legislature and narrowly lost. But she wouldn't disappear quietly. In June of 1986, a Martyr's Day rally was held at the Golden Temple in Amritsar on the two-year anniversary of Operation Blue Star. Several thousand Sikhs gathered to peacefully commemorate the lives that had been lost to violence in the past few years. Bimal Kaur Khalsa was there as an honored guest. At the end of the rally, 200 militants in the crowd took up their weapons, armed with iron bars, swords, and bamboo sticks. Bimal led them in a charge against the Golden Temple's police guards. One guard was killed and seven more were injured. In the chaos, 307 people were arrested, but Bimal managed to get away. A statewide manhunt was launched, and she was soon arrested and sentenced to two years in prison for participating in a terror attack. In 1988, the Indian government launched an effort to remove the remaining militants from inside the Golden Temple, Operation Black Thunder. Unlike Operation Blue Star, this mission was carefully planned to avoid violence. A special forces unit infiltrated the Golden Temple, killed 41 militants, and persuaded 200 more to surrender. Operation Black Thunder effectively stamped out most of the militant Sikh extremism in Punjab. But when Indira Gandhi's assassins finally saw their sentences carried out, tensions rose again. After a massive investigation, a nine-month trial, and three years of appeals, Satwant Singh and Kehar Singh were sentenced to death. At 7.30 in the morning on January 6, 1989, Satwant and Kehar were led to the gallows. It was a chilly morning, and both men stood silently as they watched the hangmen tie their nooses. 25-year-old Satwant's family wasn't allowed to attend the execution. His father, Tarlok, later said that he wished he had known what his son was planning so that he could have stopped him. Some of Kehar's relatives gathered around the barricades at the end of the road, including his stepson, Rajendra, who had spent the past four years trying to clear Kehar's name. They still believed Kehar was completely innocent, and since the official records of the trial weren't made public, there was little evidence to contradict them. At 8 a.m., the family started calling Bole So Nihal Sat Sri Akal, the same victory cry Bayant and Satwant had shouted after the assassination. Rajendra started to shout, Rajiv Gandhi Murtabad, death to Rajiv Gandhi. His aunt clamped a hand over his mouth to stop him. After the two men were hanged, their bodies were cremated inside the jail complex. And in violation of Sikh customs, the ashes weren't released to their families. Officials feared that any funeral ceremony for the assassins would end in violence. At his trial, Sut once said, I have no hatred for any Hindu, Muslim, Christian, neither hatred for any religion. I am not in favor of any retaliation or bloodshed over my martyrdom. If we do create bloodshed, then there is no difference between us and Rajiv Gandhi. 
I am proud of the task that I did. If I could, I would give up a thousand lives to kill thugs like Indira Gandhi and laugh as I become a martyr by hanging. To Sutwant, paradoxically, his act of murder amounted to a call for peace. He killed Indira Gandhi not because he wanted to incite a religious war, but because he wanted to end the violence against Sikhs. He avenged Gandhi's attack on the Golden Temple and offered himself up as a martyr, hoping that his execution would be enough to end the conflict. Unfortunately, his plan was miscalculated. After his execution, more violence was on the horizon. Coming up, we'll look at the legacy of Indira Gandhi's assassination. Now back to the story. When Satwant Singh and Kehar Singh were executed in January 1989, the Indian government foresaw more unrest in the Sikh community. Officials refused to hand over the remains of the deceased in violation of Sikh customs, fearing a funeral ceremony would end in violence. Despite Satwant's call for peace during his trial, two days after his execution, Sikh gunmen killed 14 Hindus in Punjab. The same day, an extremist group set fire to a railway station, and police in Punjab discovered two undetonated bombs planted in trash cans. But on the whole, most of India's Sikhs were quiet, commemorating the two assassins with three days of mourning. Just as Bayant and Satwan had hoped, they were remembered by Sikhs as righteous martyrs. The executions thrust their co-conspirator's widow, Bimal Kaur Khalsa, back into the spotlight. She was just getting out of jail after serving two years for leading an attack on guards outside the Golden Temple. And this time around, she channeled her fury into something more productive, politics. In November 1989, riding the wave of anger after Sutwant and Kehar's executions, Several Sikh politicians were elected to parliament, including 38-year-old Bimal and Bayant Singh's father, Sucha Singh. In the 1989 election, all the opposition parties united under a coalition called the National Front, led by a former member of Rajiv Gandhi's cabinet named V.P. Singh. Together, the National Front won a majority in parliament, throwing the Congress party and Rajiv Gandhi out of power. V.P. Singh became the seventh prime minister. A member of the Nehru Gandhi family had served as prime minister for 37 of the past 42 years. After Rajiv Gandhi's ouster, the family would never again control the seat. Political analyst Rajni Kotari commented, Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi has just presided over the liquidation of a dynasty. As far as Mrs. Bayant Singh is concerned, her victory certainly is an assertion of that anger toward the ruling family. The vote declares, you have not punished the guilty. You have only hanged the assassins. Upon her election, Bimal promised to prosecute Rajiv Gandhi for a kickback scandal that hadn't been fully investigated and to, quote, prosecute those who have murdered my husband and those responsible for the 1984 riots. Unfortunately, she didn't have time to see those projects through. 
Less than a year later, in September 1990, Bimal died under mysterious circumstances. At first, it was suspected that she died from cyanide ingestion. But authorities later said she was electrocuted by a malfunctioning washing machine. Definitive answers never came about, in part because police refused to perform an autopsy and no one was ever arrested in connection with the mysterious death. Still, Bimal Kaur Khalsa was not the only one who wanted to bring Rajiv Gandhi to justice. Even though he had been dethroned as prime minister, Rajiv had his sights set on returning to parliament in the next election. On May 21st, 1991, he went to Chennai for a campaign event. While he was mingling with voters, a woman casually walked over to him and said hello. She bent down to touch his feet, a symbol of respect. Then she reached under her dress and detonated a pound and a half of explosives tucked into her belt. Rajiv Gandhi was pronounced dead immediately at the age of 46. The assassin, Tenmori Rajaratnam, was also killed in the blast, along with 14 others who were standing nearby. Rajaratnam was a member of a militant group called the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, or LTTE, which sought retaliation against India for its involvement in the Sri Lankan Civil War. The attack seemed to be prompted by an interview Rajiv had given the previous year where he promised to disarm the LTTE if he regained power. 26 LTTE members were convicted in connection with the assassination. The investigation took seven years, but in January 1998, the verdict came down. After six and a half years of trial in the Rajiv Gandhi assassination case, a judge ruled that all 26 people who were charged should be sentenced to death. This was a very surprising decision. The punishment struck many as too severe. After an appeal to the Supreme Court, death sentences were only upheld for four of the 26 conspirators. One of those four was Nalini Sriharan, who claimed to have no involvement in the assassination plot. However, in 2000, Rajiv's widow, Sonia, campaigned for Sriharan's sentence to be commuted to life imprisonment. The reason for this display of forgiveness was that while she was in prison, Sriharan had given birth to a daughter. For the past two decades, Sonia Gandhi had witnessed so much senseless violence, the murders of her mother-in-law and her husband, the slaughter of thousands of Sikh and Hindu citizens in religious conflicts. It was time to end the cycle of violence before it radicalized another generation into extremism. May 21st, the day of Rajiv's death, is now celebrated as Anti-Terrorism Day in India, an apt way to remember both the terrorism that claimed Rajiv and Indira Gandhi's lives and the anti-Sikh violence that occurred during their terms of service. Three decades after her death, Indira Gandhi's legacy remains complicated. The spot where she was killed has been turned into a memorial. Numerous landmarks and even an airport have been named after her. She's remembered for connecting with poverty-stricken citizens, transforming the economy, and nationalizing private industries like banking, oil, and agriculture. 
But she's also remembered for consolidating an unprecedented amount of central power, bending the Constitution to her will, and suspending elections and civil liberties during her 21-month state of emergency. While many remember her as a symbol of hope of populism, many others see her as a symbol of nepotism and tyranny. Sikhs still remember the violence of Operation Blue Star and the riots that followed Gandhi's assassination in 1984. While 442 rioters in Delhi were convicted after the riots, the political leaders who encouraged the violence and the police officers who ignored it were never held accountable. Since his election in 2014, the current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, has vowed to bring the perpetrators of the riots to justice. In 2018, the Indian Supreme Court opened a special investigation into 186 riot-related cases that hadn't been fully investigated. Speaking in Punjab in May 2019, Modi called the riots a horrendous genocide and asked, can Punjab forget the 1984 riots? Can the country forget it? Indira Gandhi's assassination and the violence that followed changed the nation in ways that still resonate 35 years later. It's hard to imagine what the world would be like today if Gandhi hadn't been assassinated, but we can assume that the conflict between Sikhs and Hindus in India would have played out much differently. Operation Blue Star raised the tensions between Sikhs and the Indian government to their breaking point. Before her death, Indira Gandhi had mostly been ignoring those tensions, treating the unrest in Punjab as little more than a political annoyance. If she had continued as prime minister, she probably would have continued to stifle the calls for independence by Sikhs living in Punjab, and eventually, the anger would have boiled over into an act of violence, just as shocking as the assassination. Obviously, without Indira's assassination, there would have been no 1984 anti-Sikh riots. The thousands of people who lost their lives in the attacks would still be alive. But with tensions so high, it's possible a wave of violence would have broken out soon enough, spurred on by some other provocation. Indira's death led to a rift between extremist Sikhs who called for the formation of an independent state and moderate Sikhs who wanted to remain part of India. While many people leaned toward extremism in the wake of the assassination, it's possible that if she lived, the two factions would have stayed united under a common goal. They might have actually been able to achieve more for the Sikh community if the extremist branch didn't grow so strong. On the other hand, the wave of Sikh extremism in the late 80s actually succeeded in serving as a wake-up call to the Indian government. Rajiv Gandhi made an offer to relinquish federal control over parts of Punjab, although the two sides never reached an agreement on the deal. If his mother had still been serving as prime minister, it's hard to say whether she would have agreed to open negotiations at all. Paradoxically, if Rajiv Gandhi hadn't been thrust into the spotlight at such a contentious moment, he might have had a much longer and more successful career. It's clear that he was being groomed as Indira's successor. Whenever she did eventually die or retire, he was poised to take her place. 
If he had been more prepared and inherited a calmer political climate, he might have held his position as prime minister for much longer, and the family dynasty wouldn't have been toppled so soon. Of course, it's just as likely that Indira would have been thrown out of power before Rajiv was able to step in and replace her. If the anger about Operation Blue Star hadn't boiled over into an assassination, it might have taken the form of a political movement, similar to the wave of opposition that unseated Rajiv in 1989. Regardless of how or when Rajiv assumed power, it's possible he still would have been killed in the early 90s. He was the subject of several assassination plots prior to the one that took his life in 1991. Even if he hadn't become prime minister, his family name may have been enough to make him a target. And what about the other side of the equation? If Bayant Singh hadn't killed Indira Gandhi, his wife Bimal probably would have continued living a quiet life as a nurse instead of joining a militant group, running for parliament, and allegedly being poisoned to death. The couple's three children would have grown up with two parents instead of none. Sudwan Singh was only 21 years old at the time of the assassination. His brief brush with extremism might have passed as the pain of Operation Blue Star faded, and he could have lived a long and full life as a member of the Delhi police. At the time of his arrest, Satwant was engaged to a woman named Surinder Kaur. While Satwant was on death row, Surinder married him, using a photograph to stand in for him during the traditional Sikh wedding ceremony. Just six months after the ceremony, Surinder became a widow. Bayant and Satwant may have been trying to ease the suffering of their fellow Sikhs by taking revenge on Indira Gandhi. But in the end, they only caused more suffering for their own families, for the thousands of people killed in the 1984 riots, and for the Sikh community at large. Violence only leads to more violence. The last of the Nehru-Gandhi family line, Rajiv and Sonia's son, Rahul, is currently serving as the president of the Congress party. On the campaign trail in 2013, he recalled that Bayant and Satwant weren't just his grandmother's bodyguards, they were his friends. He was 15 when the assassination occurred, not much younger than the 21-year-old Satwant. After the assassination, it took Rahul over a decade to let go of his pain about their betrayal. Referencing the 1984 riots, he recalled... The Sikh brothers sitting here know what happened after that. But what happened to me? I lost my grandmother. The pain that I suffered that day, and then, when I lost my father, I know and I understand. After Indira's assassination, there was only anger all around. It takes minutes to start anger, but years to get rid of it. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. 
If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Olga Lexel and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 